When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1014. Um, I am in Raleigh, North Carolina this weekend, August 8, 9, 10, performing at Good Nights. So come on out. Goodnightscomedy.com is the website. And uh, get in from the heat and the <laughs> very strong humidity, which uh, feels like uh, sometimes when you step outside, like you're walking through a hot car wash. But uh, otherwise, I'm really enjoying Raleigh. Had amazing barbecue. Uh, here with my friends Kyle and Razzle, and uh, we will all be at Good Nights this weekend. So come on out for that. And now let's go to the corkboard for some corkboard events from you, the ID10T community, like Corey, who writes, My friend and I have a live electronic music show in San Francisco called Peaked, P-I-Q-U-E-D. Monthly, we feature two artists the third Wednesday, 6.30 to 8.30, August 21st. Synthways will be provided by Musical Fungus and Otto Leon. Uh, find out more by searching... Uh, Peaked, P-I-Q-U-E-D, uh, a meetup for electronic music makers. All right. Also, Aaron writes, I would like to promote my brother's amazing band, The Darling Sons. They're going on their first tour in August, and everyone should come out and see them. My brother's been through so much and overcome many obstacles in his life, and at only 24, he's made this small folk band from the outskirts of Chicago become a giant talent that people enjoy to see. Plus, he's my little bro, so I have to give him my shameless older sister promotion. They will be in Cincinnati, Philadelphia, New York, and Chicago very soon. Find all their dates and information at thedarlingsons.com. Uh, this episode is Leslie Manville, who is just an incredible actress, Oscar-nominated. Um, she was in Phantom Thread. She's been in a ton of stuff, and she is promoting uh, Mum, which is a series that's currently on BritBox. And she's also in Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, which will be out October 18th. And just an incredibly sweet lady. And also, yeah, I mean, like, literally one of the best actress in the business and uh it was really a lovely chat with her and so please 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 watch mom it's fantastic and she is also great in that so uh let's get going into episode 1014 of the id10t podcast with leslie manville as we roll softly into the thing initiating id10t protocol
how are you? Very good, thanks. Yeah, good. really good. Do you live, I assume you live in the UK? I do, I live in London, yeah. And do you get to Los Angeles often? Depends. I mean, I was here last year for a month doing a play that we transferred from London, West End London, to, and then we did a month in New York with it, and then we brought it to LA for a month. Yeah. You know, I'm here doing press and was here for awards things that I've been involved, you know, been... Nice. So, yeah, I'm here sometimes, but it depends. How do you find the Los Angeles theatre audience? Because I would imagine... Oh, it's weird. <laughs> that's what I was... I was I was worried you're going to be like, oh, it's the same. And I feel like, is it? Because oh, I feel no, like New York really is its own thing, LA is its own thing, and, and London is its own thing. Well, they don't really have theatre in LA. So no. It, it, I mean, there is a bit, but... It, in this there are theatres, but there's not, like, theatre. No. There's not theatre. No, there's not, like, no theatre. <laughs> there isn't, like, a kind of culture of theatre, really. No. And we were playing at the Wallace Annenberg in... Um, right next to Rodeo Drive. So our audience were quite particular. Right. But, you know, they, they kind of think they're at a movie. They want to eat and they want to look <laughs> at their texts. Oh, no. They, they want to, and they bring their dogs. What? Mm? Jane Fonda came with her dog in her handbag. Sure. <laughs> and I other mean, people came. It wasn't just Jane Fonda. Other people came with their dogs. Yeah. And I think it's, it's Eugene O'Neill. It's three hours. Do, we, do you really want to bring your dog? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is my therapy dog, and I can't watch theater without yeah, well, the, without my yes, comfort I mean, animal. Listen, it did have Jeremy. I was playing opposite Jeremy Irons, who takes his dog everywhere as a kind of emotional support. Of course, of course. So his dog was backstage. So if Jeremy's going to bring his dog, then other people get to bring their dogs yeah, it's too. A bit different to it sitting in the audience though and watching. But is is it does London theater culture? Is it is it shameful to start texting and pull out your phone? Is that look is that frowned upon? Oh, most definitely. That makes me happy to hear that. And 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 there there are people uh, who write. Um, uh, it, you, it gets written about if somebody if somebody's phone has gone off in the audience, and actors have been known to stop at the audience, stop really, the show and tell them to turn it off. I was doing Six Degrees of Separation, which is an American play. Sure. At the Old Vic Theatre in London. And um, it was a very, the, the scene was very low lit. And I was coming on to do a monologue. And I kept seeing this light coming up in the darkness of the audience. I kept seeing this thing. Come on. I thought, OK, someone's on their phone. And it kept happening. And it was bothering other people in the audience as well. Right. It was very dark and you kept seeing this light. So in the middle of the speech, sort of without stopping and without coming out of character or changing to my English accent, I just told them to turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. That's fantastic. Oh, no, we have a very low tolerance level of any of that. It's, you know, it, and eating, you know, it, it, you, 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 in, in England, you don't sit and eat really in the theatre. Yeah, but we're, because I think people here in the States are moviegoers. Yeah. It's like movie first and then they'll go see theater, maybe. Oh, no, listen, I know. I mean, it's not not, not in New York. No, no New, York is, a, New York is very specific. Yeah, it has a huge theater community. But, but everywhere else is but like... But L.A. was very different, very different. And, I mean, I even, when we were doing Long Day's Journey Into Night last year, I even said to the front of house, can you please stop selling these... Sweets with these incredibly noisy wrappers. <laughs> because they'd bring them in and then they'd no. open them and they'd... Oh, it's unbearable. Yeah. And the other thing they did, which drove us mad, is um, the lights would come up 
And the the play starts with um, the characters Jeremy and I were playing, who are husband and wife. And he says to her, you're a fine figure now with those 20 pounds you've gained. It's quite important that you know that she's obviously been ill and now she's put on weight and she's getting better. Well, of course, in L.A., they all do that ridiculous thing of applauding you. (laughs) Oh, God, here they are. Oh, it's them. Let's clap. And then nobody can hear what they're saying. (laughs) So we had to devise this ridiculous thing of... If they were, if they clap, so we had to wait a moment. Thought, are they clapping? No, they're not. We'll start the dialogue. Or are they clapping? Oh, yes, they are. We do a kind of little twirl, twirled me around or something, so that we could let the clapping happen and then speak. Because otherwise, they started, they missed. Something of an important bit of information. Now, see, I was worried that what you were going to say is because it was Los Angeles, when he says she's gained 20 pounds, people are like, oh, no, because of the narcissism. <laughs> 20 pounds, what? Well, I did wear a little fat suit because obviously if I, I'm not overweight at all. So I'm quite tiny already. So if you imagine me minus 20 pounds, you know, sure. I, I, I wouldn't, there would be hardly anything of me. I'd be bones. <laughs> I don't know why they don't. Um, at some shows, uh, some of the comedy clubs I performed at put phones in these bags, and the bags lock, and then people cannot access their phones during the show. And it seems yeah. to me that would be an easier sell at a theater show because who could, you know, it's like it's theater. Like, you know, comedy's comedy, but theater's very fancy. And I, I think people would be like, oh, of course. You, of course you need to lock up your phone for a theater show. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe maybe L.A., we're just too into our own crap here. I don't know. Listen, I, I kind of gave up in the end because I just thought, okay, you, you think you're watching a movie. You want to eat your popcorn. You want to do your texting. You're going to miss the crucial moments. But, hey, that's your problem, not mine. I guess so. So at that point, you, are you... Kind of just, all right, well, this this performance is just going to be for me. If everyone is distracted and doing <laughs> dumb shit in the audience, I'll just, this performance, I'll just focus in on what I'm doing and just sort well, of you, shut you them kind out. Of got to the, otherwise, you'd be stopping every five minutes. You know, can you put that away? Can you stop doing that? <laughs> stop chewing. And can you take that dog out? It needs to be. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it would be endless. So it you sounds like a daycare to... situation. <laughs> It's like you guys aren't on a plane. This is a theater. You know, these you paid a lot of money for tickets. You came out. You put on clothes. You parked. Listen, a lot of people did. We did behave very well. I'm painting a kind of slightly bad picture for the sake of humor, but um, it it was very different playing in LA right. to, to to the other to London and New York. Yeah. Well, and in this is also the side of the country where I mean, obviously in New York and the UK. Well, I don't know. I just I feel like. British performers have a much more holistic approach to acting. And so, you know, I feel like more of the British performers do theater and television and film. like oh, yeah. And all, all these different types of acting. And here, I feel like people tend to choose. Now, that doesn't mean that people who are in movies don't come and do plays sometimes or people mm, cross mm, over. But no, in general, it, generally, yeah. it feels like... Theater people, yeah. you know, TV people, film people, as opposed to, well, if you're an actor, you act. And that doesn't matter what the performance no. medium is. That's absolutely the case. I mean, in England, you you 
certainly people of my age, anyone really over 40 in England is likely to have started their careers doing a lot of, t- of theatre. Yeah. Whether it's in the West End or whether it's at the subsidised companies, you know, the repertory companies that are all over England, uh, they'll have done theatre. It's it's very, be very odd to find an actor who hadn't done that. Um and so you do get skilled in in all of these departments, and it's 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 really helpful to be able to be a good stage actor because it 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 kind of teaches you to sort yourself out a bit, you know. On on television and film, you get very you get you're doing maybe moments that are thirty seconds or two minutes. That's all you're shooting, um, and you just have to get that bit right. And then it gets taken over by editors and all sure. of that. When you're on stage, you know, you have a five-week rehearsal period or six weeks, whatever, and it's a collaboration and you've got to work it, work it out with the director and the other actors. And then the director goes, well, you open, and then the director goes away and you're kind of on your own. And you have to, you have to deal with that arc of the evening, which is yours and the other actor's responsibility. So it, it teaches you to be self-sufficient. Sure. Yeah, but I also think, I also imagine that if you're doing film, you're a little more focused on your own performance, but if you're in a company, in a theater company, you kind of have to work with a group, right? I mean, you can't mm. just steamroll over people. No, no, you can't. You've got to, you've got to work together. And so right. it's a very, yeah, it's a very different um, collaboration. Whereas film, yeah, it's, it's all a bit more selfish. You know, you get the close-up that's just on you and, um, yeah. I mean, does does the uh, does the having to do press and the having people recognize you in the street does any of that stuff get in the way? Like, do you did you does do you like any of that stuff, or do you feel like ah, it's nice, but it's just like I'd rather just be acting. You know, if I could just act, that would be preferential. Yeah, I mean, I I think because I've had so many decades working that. Um, you know, when I was in my 20s and start, well, I started when I was 16, but, you know, in my 20s and that, and people in England never thought about coming to America or doing pilot season. I mean, it just didn't happen. It wasn't on the radar even. Um, so you just you just knuckled down and you did the work in England and you, you probably did a lot of theatre and you might do the odd telly and, and and occasionally a film. I mean, we didn't even used to make an awful lot of films. You know, the the culture and the climate is so different now, and there's social media, which I'm not on in any way, shape, or form because that does seem like um, for me a waste of energy. Sure. Um, and I and I like to keep some. And an, an anonymity, because I'm trying to convince people that I'm Kathy in Mum and Lydia in Harlots and Cyril in Phantom Thread. I don't want them to know that much about my my private life. So right. Press is a means to an end, and I and on the whole, I enjoy it. And thankfully, now I have you know publicists who steer me in the right direction of who I, who to talk to and who not to talk to. Sure. Um, and I want to publicise the work I've done, but. I don't. Um, it, it, it's a kind of a new, newer thing for me because it's generational. Because as I say, when I was in my twenties and my thirties, even um, it, it it sort of wasn't what mattered, right? And what you did so much of, right? It, it, it's my industry has changed so much in the time that I've been acting. So. You know, I'm, you, you kind of go with the flow and all that. And it's all very useful. And, you know, 
press, if you do the right kind of press and awards and all of that, they're very helpful. But I see it as a means to an end to help to not to help, but to um, to open up the possibility of more interesting stuff to do because my favourite places in the world are being on a really good film set or a television set or in a really good rehearsal room rehearsing a play and doing it right that's where I want to be and it and it and I and you don't want the audience to be in a situation where they go oh look that's Leslie Manville as this character you want them to just go oh that's yeah, Lydia, you, that, yeah. that's that person. You don't want them to go, oh, that's Leslie Manville from, and that you're so linked with <laughs> right. one role. I mean, that wouldn't suit me. It suits lots of actors, and they like it, and it can be a launch pad for them in some ways, you know. But it, I would, I don't mind them saying, oh, you know, that we love you in Mom and we love you in Phantom Throat. Oh, that's great. But if I was only associated, really, in their eyes for one thing... I, that wouldn't get me out of bed in the morning. What I like is the variety of work mm-hmm. that I do, and um, and and also the the range of characters that I get to play. And if someone offered like a massive tentpole film franchise, like you're going to play this character in like nine Marvel movies. Is or whatever is that like? Oh well, I don't know if I don't know if I want to be too associated with any one character. Or does that seem like sure? You know, I would I wouldn't mind being in some tentpole thing, and it would free me up to kind of do other stuff on the side that I, I want to do. Like, have you have you thought about? I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought about that because um, you can only look at each offer when it comes your way. But I kind of think it's unlikely. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I, I don't think people's perception of me is of. Um, I think the people's perception of me is what I want it to be, which is that they think of me as chameleon, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who can sort of do anything. Uh, you know, I haven't messed around in my face, so you get what you get. I'm not frightened of saying how old I am. I don't think that kind of franchise is going to be coming my way because I, I, I just don't think it is. You know, I was just talking about this with someone uh, in another podcast about... How when people, because she was saying like, well, I'm 30, she was 39 and her doctor was like, okay, now here's your chance. If you want to go down this road with stuff, changing stuff or no. And she was like, do I have to make this decision now? What? And I think it's really interesting that uh, performers who have cho- who've chosen to not take that path. Now people see them in films and they go, wow, they look really great because they look healthy. They, like, they look like a person is supposed to look and not this kind of like yeah. that weird kind of blow up doll face that everyone seems to be. Yeah. Not everyone, but that people, you know, Some tend of them to... choose to do. Yeah. yeah. I, I honestly, I, I suppose the difference is partly, partly growing up in England and not growing up in the States where that kind of facial work has been much more prevalent. Right. Um, I mean, we're, we're a bit late to the party in England, but not to say it's not happening because it is. But honestly, I, I, it doesn't really enter my head to that's, do it. That's good, though, because it means it says that you're comfortable with who you are and you embrace who you are. And that's how you find the these characters that you find like they're all they all must be a piece of you in some way even yes, if but listen you're you know and but more crucially for me i'm i'm trying to play real people right if i don't if i look like somebody who's um my age but with oddly enough no wrinkles <laughs> then i 
I'm, I'm, it's, I'm on a losing wicket to begin with. It, honestly, it's just, I'm too bright. I'm too intelligent. It's just a stupid thought in for me. Sure. So I, I will never be going there. And also, if your face was pulled back and you're like, well, here we are in Phantom Thread, you know, like you wouldn't, you're like, I don't know, is this, I'm not really sure this fits the time period. That's kind of strange. No, that doesn't, it doesn't look right. it doesn't fit in any way, shape or form for me as an actor. But, but a lot of people do it, like doing it, like looking 20, 30 years younger than they really are. It's, um, it's not for me. But it's almost 20 or 30 years younger, like a robot. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, yeah. I don't know. There's like a strange, there's a strange thing to it. And I do think it, because I'm sure, you know, you've seen movies before where they're like period pieces and someone's like clearly had some stuff done. You're like, I don't know. I'm, I feel a little taken <laughs> out of this being this, because it doesn't, that doesn't really fit the time period. And I imagine every British performer at some point has to do some version of a Victorian upstairs, downstairs, servants and, <laughs> and being people in charge of the estate type of a drama. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. So, <laughs> but, but, you know, and for me also, it ta- I watch really good actors sometimes and you can see that they've just done so much and you just think it takes away, for me, the credibility of them. You know, you just want to admire their acting, but you can't really see beyond this um, face that doesn't move. Right, 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 right. But I think that's sort of the difference between, you know, wanting to disappear into roles versus wanting to be like a star and yeah. a star does X, Y, and Z yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and not always the healthiest choices. No, but that's know? what I'm saying really. I think because of my, uh, the generation that I grew up in and because I grew up in London and worked in London and this was where... Uh, everything f- for me was happening. It it just wasn't on the radar to do anything like right. that, and and you just kind of got on and did the work, which was the most important thing: is the work and playing the characters. And that mindset hasn't left me. And is is comedy drama? Does it all feel <clears throat> the same thing to you? Does is there anything that you prefer doing? Are there types of roles that you set out to do, or is it just? Each thing that comes in is a new challenge and you are always looking to grow. Yeah, it is really. I mean, each thing is a challenge, but um, I'm very uh, lucky to have such a variety. I mean, and mum is um, is in a quite unique category and, and like other comedy that we have going on in England at the moment, like Fleabag, for example, they're, it's funny, but it's moving as well and it's dealing with real life stuff you know emotional stuff grief uh, in Fleabag for a different generation of characters than it is in Mum but um, I'm really liking this sort of strain of comedy that's around at the moment because you're laughing one minute and crying the next right and Mum is just a lovely very simple series about um, a woman who you see at the beginning of season one, episode one, burying her husband. And the next three seasons, that's where it ends. We were only ever going to do three. It had a, it had a finite uh, point always. Um, it's, a, it's a very gentle, slow story of her falling in love with um, her deceased husband's oldest friend and dealing along the way with the kind of more heightened characters in her life, like her son, her son's girlfriend, her brother, his girlfriend, right. the grandparents who were quite obscene and <laughs> they're the kind of rude ones in the story. But through it, the centre of it, you've got the character, my character, the mum of, of Kathy and Michael, who are this kind of, they're very calm, very level-headed, 
Um, but it's just lovely. It's touched a spot, the series, in England. It's really gone down a storm because it's a middle-aged love story and you don't, you don't often see that anymore. Right, and also it's dealing with difficult choices mm. of, you know, because I, I'm sure there's an air of appearances like, oh, well, can you fall in love with the guy who was the friend of your deceased husband? Is that yeah. okay? Is that, yeah. Well, why shouldn't it be okay? You're both alive, you know? Yeah. Like, is that, you know? Yeah, and, and exactly. I mean, that's the dilemma for Kathy, and it certainly becomes the dilemma for her son when he, by series um, three, when th- things become a bit clearer about what's going on, it becomes an issue for him. And, you know, it's, um, but it's, yeah, it's it's a very poignant, touching series, but with some very funny characters in it as well who kind of make you wince, but um, you can't help but laugh at them. Yeah, and I also, I really, I respect the kind of the British, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but there's sort of like a, like a working class actor approach, which is just like, it's your job. You show up, you do it. You go home, you live your life. There's like a nice balance. It doesn't feel like you're as consumed by like, oh, I'm so, I'm so into this role. I just can't come off it. You know, uh-huh. it just feels like, it just feels like, yeah, it's your job. And you, you do different types of roles and you stretch your legs and you do it, but then you still are able to go home and live your life and be yes. relatively unaffected. I mean, I think some actors deal with that better than others, but um, I, I've got quite a good, healthy attitude to that. I mean, I've spent a lot of my career working with Mike Lee. Yes, I know. Who's very, you know, you really do go into character, but the discipline always with him is that you then, when you're doing these big improvisations that might become the body of the film or a, a part of the film, um, you've always got to have your own antennae on the go because once you finish that improvisation, he'll take each actor away one by one and and you have to kind of debrief so you've always got to be have leslie there's always got to be leslie on the go mm-hmm. even though i'm playing this other character and you're very into this character and you've really you know researched them and done it really thoroughly but there's always going to have to be leslie on the go because i am leslie right you you can't ever for me you, i you can never say i'm totally that character because for me that's kind of a nonsense, but that's right. uh, so the, the the thing of coming in and out of character is is um, good for me. And I do a play like Long Day's Journey in tonight. I mean, really, I would not want to take that unhappy morphine addict home with me every <laughs> night. And as soon as I'm off the stage, that's it. It's gone. It really has gone. And I'm thinking about my glass of wine in the dressing room. Well, that's good because it you know, in as much as everyone kind of has their own process, you get onto a set. And then there are other performers and they have their own weird processes. And then the director has their weird processes for trying to get whatever performance they need. And so how much how much of a compromise is it like how open do you have to be coming into each project knowing, okay, this is kind of what I want to do, but I know a lot's going to depend on everything around me. So I have to be flexible. You don't often come across actors who are not kind of um, uh sort of doing it how you do sure you know, what, but it, it, it's directors that you kind of um uh, uh, can be tricky because um you want it to be a collaboration you want them to help you and a lot of time in television especially um they kind of leave you to it and it's not always helpful you know it, it, it I, I don't i need a director i don't 
I don't want to work it out by myself. I need that third eye. I, I'm not a director. I can perf- I'm, I can perform, but you've got to have somebody who's observing it and helping you to strike a balance or, you know. So that's that can be the trickiest thing. But mostly, really mostly, I work with great directors who you just get excited about what they're going to bring to your day and they're excited about what 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 the actor's going to bring to their day as well. And, and and if it's a collaboration, it's 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 a that's when good work happens. I mean, you don't want really to be working with dictators so much right. because it it then becomes um, it almost like crushes anything that you might have to offer up. Sure, and then but with Mike Lee in particular, what um, what do you what did what were you most excited to learn from him what did you come away with you know each time I first met him when I was 22 and um and I'd been working at that point for almost six years already um very doing very nice things a whole variety of stuff um but never ever crossed my mind that I could play anything other than myself uh, and that was fine. I was having a nice time doing it. Then I met him and uh, this whole thing of playing somebody that's not like you um, and the whole thing of um, creating a script by way of improvisation. I, mean, I hasten to add when we shoot his films or do his, uh, we, we are not making it up as we shoot. It. Right. It's set in stone once we shoot it. Um, at 22, the, it I was completely liberated by it. I loved it. And I was really good at it. And I felt this great sort of freedom, really. And I thought, oh, actually, God, yes, I can play these people that are not like me. And that became the kind of... um, That gave my career a a shape, really. And I knew knew what I was capable of in a way that I hadn't before that. I mean, fair enough, I was still very young, Um, so yeah, he's he's kind of been a big big player in my life, and 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 over those years since we worked together, I've you know off and on we've worked together a lot. Yeah, and then have you ever thought about directing yourself? Uh, well, somebody did ask me to once, and I did think about it very seriously and begin to go up the avenue of of doing this film, but. I then thought, no, I, I just, I didn't want to be responsible for everything, all the decisions. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and as a film director, you know, everybody wants the answer from you. What color are these shoes? I don't know. Yes, exactly. Brown, I don't know. Can we just make- they want you to make every decision. Um, but I, I, I think if I was going to direct, I'd do a play. I could do that. And it's much less time. You direct a film, it's sort of almost two years of your life. Sure. And I'm not really prepared to stop acting for that long. Um, but a play, yeah, I could do that. I could be in and out and it could be done within, you know, two months. Would you be in the play or you would have to be outside? No, I wouldn't want to be in it. I'd just want to direct it. So I might do that at some point. I might see if one of the, one of the, um, you know, the good drama schools in London, like RADA or Central or Lambda... If they, you know, I'm sure they'd be fine if I said, look, I'd like to come and direct a play. I'm sure they'd let me. Oh, I think it'd be really nice if you did, because I just, it's like you've done so many things and you've worked with so many people. I just feel like 
uh, people could learn from you. Like, there's so much, you have so much knowledge. Oh, I go and give talks. Oh, you do? Good, yeah. good, good, oh, I, good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm patron of um, the Arts Educational Drama School, and so I go there um, regularly and give talks. Um, and I've d- get talked to all sorts of groups of students and been to drama school. So I do that. But, yeah, directing would be another step. So I might do that at some point. I mean, I think the most important thing you should you could be able to teach people is how to n- basically just knock the ego part out of the way and just focus yeah. on the work. Or just I know. I think, I think it is a bit of a bugbear of mine with young people now, and I don't think it's their fault. It... It, I've got a lot of really close friends who are young actors and the pressure that they're under is huge to, um, you know, I've got, a, I've got a, a girlfriend who's in her early 30s and she goes for auditions sometimes and gets asked how many Instagram followers yeah. she has. Yeah. And I just want to go and punch them. <laughs> right. Because what has that got to do with her, her talent? You know, it's awful. And this pressure to tweet everything that you're doing and every social media, your life to within an inch of it. And, and lots of them don't want to do it, but they feel there's a pressure that they have to. But there are some of them that are really just trying to say, no, it's all about the work. It's all about the work. It's all about the work. But it's hard for them. Sure. But I, and I, but I do think that other stuff is just a trend that will do you Wayne I do I do because it because it, you mean in, you think maybe in five years time people won't be tweeting and Instagramming I'm not saying they won't be tweeting and Instagramming but that idea of the business wanting to make sure that people have X number of I mean I've heard like casting breakdowns come down it's like no one with less than a hundred thousand followers on platform you know Twitter or Facebook or, oh, or uh, Instagram or be going to be considered. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? You know, I mean, it doesn't, but I think that's a trend because I don't know. I don't think followers necessary. I don't think followers translate into more people are going to see your movie. I just don't No. I think when things are good, it just good old classic word of mouth. You know, you have yeah. to see this. This thing was really good. Yes. You know, it's like, yeah. Phantom Thread was an amazing movie. It's not like it had a massive ad campaign around it. It was just a great movie with great performers. And people were like, you've got to see this movie. These people are amazing in it. You're amazing in it. I guess, ostensibly, Daniel Day-Lewis's last film. I don't know. And so, and then people talk about And then they go see it. And then it gets nominated, you know? So it's like, it it does work, you know? Yes, but but I imagine a Paul Thomas Anderson film isn't going to be affected so much by tweet, no, I guess that's tweeting true. and Instagramming because I mean, he, you know, obviously he has a huge following anyway. He's one of this country's most successful and maverick directors. Sure, um, but and and you've got to throw into that, you know, triple Oscar winning Daniel Day Lewis, right? Um, so, but yeah, I but I think. With other stuff, I think you, you, you're right. I mean, I know I'm interested by your theory, actually, because I've never heard anybody say that. I do think it's a trend, and I just, I, I know that, um, you know, on, on shows that I've worked on or shows that friends have worked on, the results are about the same if they tweet, if they live tweet a thing versus not live tweeting a thing. Right. I don't necessarily think that social media translates into the kind of, 
you know, actionable film viewing on the part of the performer. Now, it's helpful if people see something and they like it and they tweet about it because they liked it. But you, as the person who made the thing, I just, I really don't know. Mm-mm. I don't, I don't think it translates quite the way people... Right, well, that's music to my ears. <laughs> yeah, because, I, I mean, you know, I, in the early days, I mean, I, I, I was on, I was an early adopter of Twitter, and for whatever reason, I had a lot of Twitter followers in a time when a lot of people didn't. There mm-hmm. are a handful of us did. And, you know, when I hit 50,000 Twitter followers in, you know, 2008 or nine or whatever, it was like, oh, my God, when I go do a comedy show now, they're all going to be jam-packed to the gills. And it's like, <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that those people are going to put on pants and leave their homes, no. you know, no. if they even see it, because there's they're looking at a, a million entries go by so i just don't know if it i just don't know if that means everything they think it means good there's hope then there is (laughs) i but i do think that as you know entertainment companies are kind of run by marketing divisions i think it's more about being able to pass off responsibility so that a marketing person could be like we had them tweet about it and no one came to see it so it's not my fault right because i told them to tweet you know what i mean i think it's more about that yeah I really yeah. do. Okay. But you're right. It does create a pressure. But you don't – like, you work on amazing stuff and you have an amazing career and you don't do it. So it seems to me like you're proof that it doesn't – Well, yeah, but I'm a diff- – you know, I, I'm a different generation. I think I, I – think, and, that, and that does make a difference because nobody expects somebody like me to, to be tweeting or have a career that's tweet-based and all of that. So, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just I, – I, I'm just – the legacy of the work I've done, I suppose, for the decades that I've been doing it. Yeah. And so how do you, like, what do you do that sort of keeps you grounded? And like, what, what's your, what is your life outside the business? I imagine it's just like a pretty. Yeah, it's normal. It's quite normal. I mean, you know, I, I live in, I live in London. I live in a kind of regular street and I go to the shops and I travel on public transport like everyone does in London because we have a great public transport you really do i'm so jealous of it it is amazing yeah it's great It's amazing and not not everyone's driving their cars um and 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 the beauty of that is that you get this amazing cross-section of people traveling um which is good because i like listening to people talking and all of that stuff well yeah of course because if you're because as an actor if you're not part of the human experience how do you no, portray course. characters? If I mean, and I have enough times in my life when my existence is a little rarefied. You sure. Know, like, I do trips like this and I stay in a hotel and I get driven around to come and talk to people like you. Sure. And then you go to an award season and then this and that and the other. So you get all of that bit. Uh, but uh, thankfully, I'm never blasé about that. I mean, I, th- I think because, again, you know, it, it's all come quite... Uh, relatively late for me I you know I wasn't famous or successful or well known when I was in my 20s and 30s so because it's all come a bit later um, and it's just not in my nature to take it for granted so I do I do enjoy all of that but I I, I couldn't live my life like that all the time and um, I mean yeah you know I get you get people coming up to you in the street and saying nice things but also you know I'm not I'm not a major 
A-lister movie star. You know, it's not impossible to walk around. Right. Um, and and it, it really isn't. So, But that sounds nice. Like, it really sounds like you're nice. in the perfect place of, like... Oh, that's what you want. You get to work, but you don't get chased down by paparazzi. You still might meet people at parties that go, what do you do? And you go, No, oh, of course you, know, you do. It's and that's kind of nice. That really is what you want. That truly is what you want for your sanity. And I, you know, I do know some seriously big... I'm very close to some seriously big movie stars. And their lives are not, I'm not saying they're, uh, you know, oh, poor, poor them, poor them. But that aspect of their lives that they don't have, that I do have, they they miss it. Of course, everyone wants to Because they really can't be. just go out and walk around um, Oxford Street in London and just do what everyone else is just doing. Just be they a can't. part of humanity. Yeah, it's really, it's really difficult. Now, you know, there's, it's it's balanced out by... Other aspects of their life that they have that a lot of people don't, you know, security and finances and all of that sort of thing. But but isolation too, which is it, like yeah. is not it. It, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have if you're isolated. Like you, I don't think that's fun. I mean, you, maybe there are people who just don't like other people, and that's like, fine. But I don't. But I don't think we were meant to be isolated creatures. I think we were meant to be communal, and it's mm. hard to be communal. I mean, it's it's hard it's hard when you can't just be a part of the community to just feel normal. I think so. Yeah. So yeah, I I honestly lead a very normal life when I'm not um, working. And in your twenties and thirties, because you said, oh, you know, that all this stuff really came later for me. What's going through your head in your twenties and thirties? You're like, well, as long as I'm, you know, as long as I can survive and go play to play and work, you know, mm. that's all I really need. I don't really need. Yeah. Much I mean, more but than that. but honestly, at that time. British actors were not thinking, I'm going to go to the States and do pilot season. Right. Um, and if only I could go to America. And it just wasn't on the radar. So, yeah, you did. I did just think, um, uh, oh, you know, I did lots of theatre, which didn't pay very well. And so, you know, I'd kind of downscale where I lived so I could afford it and was very self-sufficient. And then the odd television would come along and you think, oh, that's great because you know, that's a little bit of money so that can subsidise another play that I'm going to do. Because, you know, a lot of theatre in London is not the West End. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not the equivalent of Broadway. A lot of it is um, subsidised theatre. I mean, of the highest quality. You know, the, we've got the National Theatre, we had the Royal Shakespeare Company, lots of really brilliant fringe theatres where the work is exceptional and you get the cream of directors and writers working there. But, you know, you'll earn very little money, very little. So if you could subsidise it with a television role here and there. So that was what my 20s and 30s was like. But also, looking back on it, I mean, halcyon days wonderful i just got to work with most wonder the most wonderful people and playwrights on new plays that are now classics you know and that's how you know you're doing the right thing if you can never you know um uh, i have a really great manager who always, the first thing he always says is well if you take money out of the equation what does this thing mean to you which is the best way to think about things because yeah. again it doesn't matter how much or how little you're getting for something if you would do it no matter what it's exactly. probably the right thing for you to do no i couldn't agree with you more you cuz you have to live with yourself right and i i ha- you know my i can only create my own moral standards and live by them and um and i honestly have never sold out and done a job 
just because it's going to pay a lot of money. I've only ever done that job because I've really wanted to do that job. So you have turned, you've turned down stuff like, you know, that sounds great, but I just don't really, it's just, I, my God, heart's yes, not in it. Yes, of course, of course. Oh, that's great. No is a very powerful word. Turn, turn down lots of stuff because you just think, no, it's not, not really right. It's not what I want. I'd feel a bit, I'd feel a bit not me doing that. And yeah, because that's all you've got to cling on to. That's all you've got. It does, but don't, but I think the challenge behind that is, you know, you it sounds like you know who you are, but I think a lot of people don't. And so for them to say, well, like, this isn't me, it's like, oh, I don't know. If if fame and the pursuit of all that stuff is your identity that's so fluid and it's weird, how would you even know who you are to be able to say no to something, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, fame is, um, is uh, it's, it's quite an empty thing, really. You know, it's, it's not going to... F- it's not going to nourish your soul. It really isn't. I mean, it's it's not unpleasant, I guess, but um, it, it's not it's not the real stuff of life at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would I would guess there are elements. You know, the elements of like, oh, you know, you can get a nice table at a restaurant that would normally be booked. That's nice. Sure. But then the weird pressures and the, you know, I, I don't know. It just it sounds like a lot of. It sounds like a lot of unnatural responsibility and also just kind of weird. But I also just think not necessarily part of British culture. I mean, doesn't British culture sort of shame anyone who's like, look how important I am, you know? Yeah, like, I feel like you guys quite, keep each other in check. We're quite reserved. Really. <laughs> you sort of slink quietly into a restaurant and hope nobody sees you, really. I mean, that's the British way, in a way. But when you have the body of work that you have and then something like Phantom Thread comes along... I think it's kind of fun for people to go, oh my gosh, look at this incredible body of work. And then they get to go and discover all this other, I mean, mm. you have this foundation, you know, of, of work that I think is so much better than if you had gotten a huge movie in your 20s. Definitely. I mean, there was, there was some, there was, there were some big projects that I, I was down to the last two for like in my late 20s early 30s and I was I was devastated because it happened a few times and I I took me a while to get over it but in hindsight I'm I'm actually really glad I'm really glad that it's been this um as some of the press like to say as late flowering career or a slow burn I always knew my life in every department in a way would be a slow burn and it really has been it's so funny because there's I mean I understand what they're saying but there's almost there's almost a little bit of arrogance in that statement about your career because it's like you've been flowering the whole time oh I know you know I know (laughs) what they mean by that is um famous you're getting a little bit famous now um, and yeah, I, you're right. I'm banging on the table saying, I'm sorry. Are you going to discount these amazing um, playwrights that I worked with on new plays back at the Royal Court Theatre in the day and all the films, the quieter, less, um, the, the films I made with Mike Lee that were only ever on the BBC. And all right. That. You know, it's... It, it's um, it's about a body of work. You're quite right. Yeah, it's like you were working for like forty years. It's not like it's not like you were you know worked at a bank and we're like you know, <laughs> you know at fifty eight I guess I'm going to try this acting thing. Like oh she was late flowering. It's like no you were flowering the entire time. Like I it's was. Not, <laughs> I was. You just you just know like you just noticed it now. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that. But it you wasn't. know that it that kind of does happen with. Um, I mean it certainly happened with Phantom Thread because it was about. Um, 
America opening, you know, um, opening up mm-hmm. its doors to me. Um, and it is pretty amazing what um, being in a film like that and then getting an Oscar nomination, what it does. I mean, I'm incredibly level-headed about it, but it took me by surprise even. Oh, really? Well, yes, because it's it's almost crazy that that happens and then did you even get up to see the announcements or did someone call you and go uh you just got nominated for an oscar like what is this a i was number? rehearsing long day's journey in tonight in london and uh the uh i knew the nominations were being announced that day i'd got a bafta nomination which i i sort of thought well it's bafta it's british i'm Quite, I'm sure I'll get a BAFTA nomination, and I did, but I hadn't, didn't get a SAG nomination or a Golden Globe or any of the Critics Circle prize uh, nominations over here. So the, the Oscar, the big one, I just thought well, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to happen because none of the others have, and why should they? And we were just finishing lunch in, in England, and I was at the, sitting at the back of the rehearsal room. I was the only person in there, and the director, Richard Eyre, was sitting at the front. We were just about to start a dress run, and uh, the phone, my phone rang, and it was, uh, it was my best friend, Rebecca Blonde, and I just picked up the phone, and she just screamed down it. <laughs> she said, ah! She's screaming. I said, what, what, what? She said, you've got an Oscar nomination. <laughs> And then within seconds, my agent phoned and then the, re- the run through stopped and we all went out and they brought back champagne and we, we had a little hiatus for a bit and uh, celebrated it. And um, so, yeah, it was it was great. Well, that's great. And again, I mean, you can't not I mean, in as much as you can convince yourself like, well, you know, it, awards are nice, but they don't mean everything. I mean, I mean, it's once you're in it, it's probably hard not to get, get into oh, it. Oh, listen, I mean, I'm, not, I'm. I, why wouldn't I enjoy it? I'm not, I'm not um, flip about that stuff. It was, it was, um, it, it was very exciting. It was great for the film, and I, I went with the flow. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in LA for about. 24 hours to the ceremony because I was doing the play. Oh, my God. So I didn't actually leave London Heathrow till the Sunday morning, the day of the Oscars. Oh, and you get in because of the time difference? Because of the time difference. I got in, I had an hour and a half to get ready, did the Oscars, went out for a bite to eat with, with Paul Thomas Anderson and the rest of the group, Slept, flew home, did the play. <laughs> so you were in the air as long as you were in Los Angeles, basically. Oh, well, I was longer in the air than I was in L.A. Um, but that's, you know, that's the way to do it. It was good. And then when you get back, are your friends in the play like, oh, it's Oscar nominated, Leslie Mann. Okay, yeah, okay, everyone calm down. There's a bit of down. that going on. Of course, there has to be. Of course. There absolutely has no, to be. No, it was lovely. It was a lovely time. And... and you know, I would never be blasé about anything like that. Yeah, but also it's it's the it, it is alluring to become too aware of yourself because your brain kind of does feed you. The ego stuff is really seductive, mm. and so once that happens, how are you able to just sort of like, okay, that was that, it's fine, and I'm just going to go back and just be an actor again and just well because there's been too many decades wherein that hasn't been what it's been about. So I, I um. And I suppose I'm quite a level-headed person and I'm, you know, I, I don't have um, a kind of massive ego or anything. So it, it's 
that, that that's my personality so it's not gonna kind of suddenly madly go to my head and it would be quite unattractive that anyway in a woman of my age, I think. <laughs> well, I think it's unattractive Dignity at any age. Dignity is everything. It's really, attra- it's unattractive <laughs> it at any is. age. It is, you're absolutely yeah, right. It, it, do- re- it doesn't really, <laughs> it just doesn't, it just doesn't really matter. But I do think, you know, when you make it about the work, when you make it about the thing, then everything else is just, you know, fluid. It just like, it can come, it can go, it doesn't matter. You're yeah. still getting to do the thing that, the, the thing that you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure Meryl Streep doesn't go around thinking, I think I might get an Oscar nomination for this part. I mean, she probably will. But I'm sure it's not what gets her up in the morning to go and do the job. Given the amount of work that she does and obviously wants to carry on doing, she's doing it purely for the reasons that she loves acting. Right. You know. I mean, I would almost imagine there's probably more pressure from that standpoint to do good work. Because mm. you don't want to, you know, like, I'm sure there's the pressure of like, oh, my God, I don't want to just everyone's saying all these good things about me. I don't want to. Oh, and she, there's a standard to maintain. And there's a there's a in her case, there's a brilliance to maintain because she's she's an extraordinary uh, chameleon actress. I mean, she can she can almost do anything. Yeah. But I also feel like that the. The business can be really mean to people too, because it is it, it does love to build people up and then tear them down. Like whatever their latest performance is, like yes. what happened? And it's like what God. the last movie they were so nice. What happened? you know? So I guess you just can't take any of that too seriously because it's just not. It doesn't. It's going to change all the time. I hope not. I've got a few films to come out later this year. I hope they don't suddenly decide the party's over for me. No, I don't think that's going to happen. I just don't think it's. I just don't think. I, you just can't work on as many things as you have worked on, and it's just not. Again, you're not 25 with the the two, with one movie under your belt, no. and then your entire career is make or break by your project. Oh no, it's no, like, listen, exactly. I mean, I, I could. Um, I can't believe what I'm just about to say, but I think I could weather the storm of a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because it doesn't. You know, it's not so attached to your identity that even if you did make something that didn't, you know, that didn't land, it seems like you'd be the type of person to be like, you know what? We gave it a shot. What's, yes. you know, I'm going to go back to work in the theater. I don't care. It's just like, yeah, we, you know, we tried. I, I know that I've never, um, I've never uh, thought, oh, I can phone this one in. This is easy. I can just, I don't have to bother much with this. I I, I know that I've never, ever done that. That yeah. I always, always do things to the absolute best of my ability and give my 100% commitment to them. So if somebody doesn't like it, they don't like it. That's fine. And, you know, you make a film and a lot of it is out of your hands. You know, I can do my bit and and I could arguably do it very, very well, but a film not work because it wasn't maybe as well written as I thought it was or the director hasn't done a great job or the edits not been favorable to my performance and the or the climate's not right for this particular type of film all sorts of reasons sure that's why in a way I always like to then do a play I mean I get a bit antsy if I don't do a play kind of once a year once every 18 months because it's much more about it's much more an organic experience and nobody's going to stop you the evening is your responsibility and the other actors and you're in control and um you know you've got to deliver something that nobody can tamper with really Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and you always have that to go back to no matter what. Like, that's yeah. your base. Yeah it, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you must have worked on stuff before where you thought, oh, I don't know if I did a great job. And then you see it and you go, that was really good. <laughs> wow. You know? I mean, how do you know when you're... How do you know when you're, like, what has to happen for you to go, I think I did a good job? Is it in the effort that you put in? Is it in the specific performance? Like, how do you know, like, you, Leslie, have well, done what you set out to do? Yeah, I, well, I, like, I know if I've had a good day. If I've had a good day on set and I've, you know, come up with some interesting stuff and I've been um, flying, you know, then, then, I'm, then, then I, feel, I feel good. But you are still so much in other people's hands, you know, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, I'm, I, I never, I never um, shortchange. So I, I, if it goes wrong, it, it goes wrong. Can an actor be too prepared? I mean, obviously, being underprepared is bad. But can a performer be too prepared? Is there like a happy medium between like knowing what you're supposed to do but being flexible at the same time? Yeah, I think especially on uh, with with uh, television and film, you know, there's got there's got to be a spontaneity about it, and I I like that's what I enjoy about. It both of those because uh you know you're you're going to probably maybe be on a set that you've not been on before and there's going to be lots of ingredients that are new and different and I like that challenge especially with television when there's often not as much time as there is on a film mm-hmm. uh to to work quite fast and to um you know get the creative juices flowing so that you can make a scene work and how's it best to use this set this room and this all of those things i do i do, i do like that and and you know especially on television when you're sometimes doing that at 7:30 in the morning you think my god i'm firing already and it's only 7:30 <laughs> no it's uh, yeah it, I, so too prepared yeah i learn i i know my lines i know the arc of the piece because you dip in and out, you don't shoot things chronologically sure. normally. So you've got to know the whole arc of the whole thing. And that's that's a kind of hard bit to get your head around. But within that, you've got to be flexible and spontaneous. And, you know, things that I end up doing in the moment and on the day, often, I couldn't have predicted at home thinking about it on my own. Sure. And with a show like Mum, which you, says, you said is done after this, the third season is the last season... That it that concept is so foreign to American audiences of like, oh, well, if you have a show that's working, why wouldn't you do 12 seasons of it? You yeah. know, and obviously British television is run differently. And so it's like they don't care. Like something can have two or three seasons or one season and be a hit. But then they're done. Yes. <laughs> you know? Well, I think Stefan Goloshevsky, who, who wrote it and who directed season two and three, um, when he came to me with it, he, you know, he said this is a three season show and. Um, because it's a will they won't they you know are they going to get together this couple or aren't they and when if when they have or when they haven't because we can't be a spoiler here um it's done really where do you go with it after that i mean it's done incredibly well in england it's it's been so unbelievably positively written about and reviewed and the ratings have been amazing and people you know, people that come up and talk to me about it, it's really touched them in a profound way and made them laugh at the same time. Um, I, it would be awful to milk it, really. Right. And it's not, you're right, it's it's not what, it's not the British way. <laughs> <laughs> but it also gives you the opportunity to not be stuck on the same thing forever. Oh, gosh, yeah, because I really don't want to be stuck on something forever. I really don't. 
would it would drive me mad. I mean, I'd be in a real dilemma if somebody in the States came to me with an amazing part in an amazing series and said, yes, but you've got to sign up for seven seasons. Right. I'd really... I, I, I don't know I don't know what I'd do about that well that's why that's I think sort of the beauty now of the limited series yes that it's like sign on for one season yes we'll worry about the other seasons later that's a relatively yeah. new animal in, in yeah. television yeah um, and I guess there must be a lot of actors um, in in my position you know having good careers who don't want to sign up for seven years so no. they, they got a Maybe bend the rules a bit. I mean, for, for people, it, it is kind of a strange thing because for people who are just out auditioning for stuff, if you test for something, you do sign the contract before you do your final audition. Is that right? Yeah. Um, if you go through pilot season, like traditional pilot season, because, and then they'll, it's like you sign that seven-year deal going before you even have the final audition so that if the network chooses you, they don't have to negotiate because they don't... It, it, it just it takes away their power position if you know they want you. Right. So they lock everyone in so that it's wow. so like the last three actors that go in have signed their deals. Right. And obviously things change if the show's a hit, they'll renegotiate after a year or two, so everyone kinda knows that's that's part of the deal. But yeah, yeah I mean you you know and I think people do go into it wanting that because they're like, Oh my god, seven years and I'll have that security but it's like but what are you sacrificing for that no, security? Exa- exactly. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't suit me. But that dilemma has never been um, uh, put to me. So yeah. So what would you? As we're kind of winding this down, I would love to get so two things. First of all, just a good, just a good piece of wisdom for people who are in their twenties and thirties who maybe either haven't come close to the thing they want yet, or maybe like you. Oh, they were up for some, you know something, mm-hmm. and they didn't get it, and they were like, "This is the worst thing ever. I'm never gonna recover." Like, what is what is sort of a good piece of wisdom that you would say to them? To well, just you know, keep keep going, and and just just get on with it, and get on with what you have got to do. Um, you, you, you are you are going to mourn the loss of a, a part that you really wanted, but mourn that loss and then just you know plow on to the next thing. And you know, for my money, although there's probably not a lot of young people out there who would agree with it, um, try not to have a career via social media. I, I think it's far more interesting not to, but I understand the pressures. But just keep going and keep trying to do the kind of work that you want to do. And if if you've if you get to like thirty and you get and there are people I know in this situation that oh I've never been on stage or I'm a bit frightened. I don't know. Do it. You know, do it. Because you will learn more from being on stage um than you ever will from being in front of a camera. You'll learn different things. I'm not negating being in front of a camera by any means, but you'll learn more about how to um, uh, be responsible for yourself as an actor and how to uh, plough through something unaided by Mm -hmm. being on stage. Excellent. And then sort of lastly, what... um what are you partic- what what sort of non-business related thing are you particularly joyful about right now? Is there anything that just sort of like You mean in the world? Yeah. Like what what makes you happy? <laughs> Is it just like 
being able just the the smell and the grit of the theater or are there you know there are other things in the world like oh it just just makes me smile just makes me happy well you know my family does um i've got um uh, a lovely son and i've got two grandchildren um and they all make me smile um food i like food mm-hmm. quite a lot um i like a nice glass of rosé mm-hmm. um but you know there is i think happiness is such a um you know, people talk about periods of your life where you're happy or unhappy. You know, happiness is so fleeting and in moments sometimes. I mean, I can... Last week I got in my car in London and I was just going to do something very mundane. But I just had a moment of thinking, that's good, I'm quite happy, this feels good. I wasn't going to do anything particularly special. But, you know, happiness is there in minutes and moments and quite fleeting. And you have to try and cling on to that and cling on to people that, friends that you have and people that you love because we're all in such a difficult world at the moment and we're in turmoil. I mean, we, our, my country is in political turmoil um, in the same way that yours is a bit. Um, so sometimes you just have to knuckle down and look more closely to home mm-hmm. for some happiness Um but then that feels a bit selfish because there's all the, there's this troubled world around us and you feel very inadequate and just do your do the bit that you can do you know help help charities that you want to help and donate your time and anything like that god i'm going off on one now no it's I? good it's good <laughs> no it is good because it is it is again it's part of being that and sort of what we were saying about how people who are isolated you know i think we're meant to be communal and i think we're meant to contribute to the greater good of humanity mm. and those are all the things you know that I think are the the important stuff the things that we get to do for work are fun and distracting and they're creatively fulfilling but it's not but it but it's not always it can't be everything no you know no and and it, it for me it isn't you know I feel I've got a nice healthy balance in my life between the pleasure I get from work and the and the and the ordinariness of my life, which is like anybody else's ordinary days. Well, uh, Mum is, uh, by the time this airs, uh, Mum is out on BritBox now, and yes. people can see all three seasons. Yes, they can. And it's the complete series. Yes. So if you're a completionist, you could knock it out in a day. Oh, you really could. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like... Um, it's like a bar of chocolate. You think, oh, I'll just have a little chunk. Yeah. And then you think, oh, no, actually, it's only half an hour. Oh, I must, I'll just have another one tonight. And then I'll stop. And before you know it, you can do the whole one season in, you know, under three hours. And you're done. And then you get it. Yeah. And is there anything else that you have coming out that you want to promote or anything that you have coming up that you want to talk about? Well, um, I made a film last year called Ordinary Love with Liam Neeson. And we're going to be premiering that at... Uh, the Toronto Film Festival. We're uh, on the Sunday, the opening weekend, one of the galas. So that's great. Um, that's a bit of a hard watch. It's about a couple that have been together forever and have a very lovely, good, healthy, very ordinary relationship. But then uh, my character, the wife, gets struck down with cancer. So it's this huge, epic, terrible thing that happens to these this ordinary couple and how how that navigates it and how it affects their relationship. Um, And then I have 
uh, Maleficent too. Yes, of course. Oh, yes. Let's not forget the Pixies. Nope. Um, that's coming out later in the year. And um, I've just finished a film called Let Him Go with uh, Kevin Costner and Diane Lane, which I had more fun shooting than I've almost had with anything because oh, I play great. a bad mama from North Dakota with a gun. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. I'm uh, not sure when that's coming out, maybe later this year. And another film called Misbehaviour, which is about the 1970 Miss World competition. Oh, interesting. Mm. All right. Well, I thank you so much for being here. Thank you for coming all the way to Los Angeles. I, I love the UK, and it's just far enough away <laughs> that it's like, oh, you can't just, I can't just pop over there. No, you've got to put a few things in the diary to make it worthwhile going that far. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if I'm going to go to London, it's got to be for at least a, 10 days or two weeks. Yes. You, yeah, because you'll get jet lagged up. Yeah, yeah. You get, it's like there's the jet lag getting there and then you get acclimated to the schedule and then there's a the jet lag coming back. So it's like you really have to, I really need to I be I don't get to... it coming here. I get it. I'll get it when I get home. Yeah. Here, on the way out here, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Sort of all right. The messed up part is that like it's just... It's the reverse schedule. You're eight hours ahead, so it just... Mm. It's like my wife and I were in London a couple months ago, and we were up at 3 a.m., and like by yeah. 1 in the afternoon, we were ready for bed. So yeah. it just... No, I was like that a bit here, yeah. Yes, but thank you so much for being here. You're it's welcome. an absolute pleasure, and, uh, and I look forward to seeing all of the... And we're very excited about Maleficent, too, as well. So Good, we'll yeah. All right. The Pixies are back. Thank you so much, Leslie. <laughs> thank you. The end. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. That was episode 1014 of the ID10T podcast with Leslie Manville. It's time for Word Salad Wrap. Um, there's an interesting cu- couple of things that I want to touch upon today. First being the thing that I talked about with Leslie about, you know, what would you do if you were able to take money out of the equation, which I know is not something <laughs> that is easy to do. But I think it just in terms of like the types of things, if you're trying to figure out well, what am I passionate about, what would I, you know, what would I do for free? you know, if I never got paid to do this thing. And I think that is sort of the seed of, like, inspiration, you know? Most people naturally gravitate toward something. And and what is that thing for you? And when you kind of figure out what it is, I'm just a strong believer in writing stuff down, even if it's typing it out digitally. I mean... Listen, I'm a little bit older. I do think that, you know, writing stuff down in a physical notebook is a slightly different experience than typing it out. It's, you know, you are bringing into the real world, but you're bringing it into a digital world of ones and zeros when you type it out. Still okay. Uh, But 
I do think there's something about writing into a notebook with your hand and putting it into uh, the, the physical universe. But let's just say that you, if you don't like that or you don't have the ability to do that or it's just easy for you to use some sort of app-based note-taking program, Evernote is great. Um, uh, there's a task management program called MeisterTask that I've been using lately that's really great too. And it's really just about... Um, not only figuring out what you want to do, but then figuring out how you would approach that thing. And we, it's easy to get overwhelmed when you're trying to think about like, well, I really want to do this thing, but I don't know how I would even begin to accomplish that. But that's the key is that you have to begin. And so just break it down into smaller tasks. You know, if you have one giant overarching goal that you want to achieve, you know, what. And even if you think, well, I don't know what I would do, then what if you pretended that you did know? What if you pretended that you were the type of person that did know what to do? Um, sometimes role-playing a little bit like that does kind of take you out of your own head, you know? Maybe sometimes you, if you pretend like you're giving... <laughs> if, if you are your friend that you're giving advice to, it just sort of removes an emotional layer out of it that allows you to be a little more uh, logical, that uh, that you can break stuff down into into bite-sized chunks of advice. And then it's just sort of, okay, well, if I was going to achieve this, I guess I would need X, Y, and Z. And I guess if I needed X, then here's, you know, tiny A, tiny B, tiny C of what I would have to do to even get near achieving that. And then you just break it down into little tasks. I uh, Maybe I mentioned this on the last Word Salad Wrap. I can't remember. If I did, I apologize. Um, but... Um, I've been writing differently than I, I used to write before, which was I used to wait for inspiration to strike. And then now I just do it every day as part of a, a ritual. I guess it's sort of that artist's way thing of like, you know, do morning pages, right? You know, just kind of get the machine moving. And it's been really helpful. So if you just chip away at it a little bit each day and figure out like what are the bite-sized chunks that you can carve into, um, I mean, it will blow you away. <laughs> Because a month goes fast, two months goes fast, three months, six months, how much you will have accumulated toward the pursuit of this thing. And, uh, and so it, it, is, it is possible. It's more possible to achieve some of the things than you might think because it is very easy to get protective <laughs> where we just go, ah, I probably wouldn't be able to do that. Ah, I don't know if I would be able to. And obviously there are circumstances. You know, when I say all these things, I know there are circumstances that can prevent people from doing things. I, I'm not just suggesting that everything is easy. Obviously things are challenging. Um, but when we work toward those things, we do earn them. And so the challenge is kind of where the reward is in a way, isn't it? Right? I mean, if you had a cheat code for life, it'd be fun for a while, but then you'd get bored. <laughs> you know, the challenge is where the growth happens. So embrace that because that means you'll, that means you're getting better and you will get better. And then the challenges you face today are probably bigger than the ones you faced before. And you look back at the ones you faced before and you're like, God, those seem so hard, but those were actually easy. Yes, because you've overcome them because you've just pushed and waded through. So writing down into little bite-sized chunks, what are tiny little actions you can take each day, even if it's one small thing, if it allows you to check the box in your mind, then you will feel like you accomplished something that day and that you were successful that day. Even if, you, even if it was 30 seconds, you're still able to check that box. You know, my trainer Tom always says like, you know what, even if you have 10 minutes for fitness, stretch, whatever, do some sit-ups, whatever, just as long as in your brain you can check that box uh, it allows you to 
not only feel like you did accomplish whatever you were able to in that day, but it also has that added effect of saying to yourself, like, hey, I was worth taking the time for me today. Um, you can start brushing out the cobwebs of self-loathing, which never helped anyone. So <laughs> go ahead, brush out those cobwebs, write some stuff down. And uh, events at ID10T.com, by the way, is not only uh, how you can submit your stuff for the corkboard, but also what are you looking at ID10T.com? I thought it was so clever when I came up with the email, but then of course you have to explain like, no, the at is the at symbol. You don't write at and then the at symbol, but what are you looking at id10t.com? You know, if you have note-taking programs or task management programs or project management uh, apps that you like, um, let me know. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll share those uh, with, with other folks. But anyway, thank you so much for listening and um, I will see you in your ears real soon. ID10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts